My name is Ben. I'm one of the pastors here at Grace. It's my privilege to be able to to uh, speak to God's word this morning. And we've been in a series uh, as a church in the Old Testament book of First Samuel. Uh, and today we fast forward a little bit um, from the beginning of Saul's story to the end of Saul's story, uh, or the beginning of the end, I should say. And we find ourselves in 1 Samuel chapter 15. 1 Samuel 15, and I'm going to be reading the text, uh, starting in verse 10 and reading through uh, verse 28. And so if you have your Bibles, you can open them there. Uh, You can also just follow along on the screen. Uh, But this is 1 Samuel 15. Starting in verse 10, God's word. The wor- Let me give a little bit of background. So uh, otherwise you're just going to be like, what just happened, man? So where we just uh, fast forwarded uh, a couple of decades and uh, Saul has been given a command that we'll discuss uh, to go engage uh, some enemies of God, some of their neighbors. And he has been told, do not take any plunder or spoil from these individuals. And he has taken both prisoners and spoil. And uh, we pick up the story there. The word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry, and he cried to the Lord all night. And Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning. And it was told Samuel, Saul went to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself, and turned and passed on and went down to Gilgal. And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of sheep in my ears and the lowing of oxen that I hear? And Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites. For the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God. And the rest we devoted to destruction. Then Samuel said to Saul, stop, I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. And he said to him, speak. And Samuel said, though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel. And the Lord sent you on a mission and said, go, devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission for which the Lord has sent me. I have brought back Agog, the king of Amalek. And I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took the spoil, sheep and oxen. 
the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. And Samuel said, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fant of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry because you have rejected the word of the Lord. He also rejected you from being king. And Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may bow before the Lord. And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. And as Samuel turned to go away, Saul seized the skirt of his robe and it tore And Samuel said to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for us. Gracious Heavenly Father, we need your help to illumine this word. Would you you lead us to Christ this morning? Would you be with us as we look at this sobering text? We give you praise and thanks in Christ's name. Amen and amen. And it is a sobering passage. It's the beginning of the end for Saul. Saul will stick around, but as a villain, as a foil for David, what we'll see Saul become is more and more power hungry. We'll see him become an abusive tyrant whose life spirals down into self-destructive ruin. But that's not how Saul started out. You go back and read and Saul's kind of shy. Remember him hiding behind the luggage How did that man, not a good man, but not a monster, a man filled with fear and insecurities, how does he spiral into absolute evil? How does that happen? That's an extremely relevant question because no one wakes up in the morning and says, I'm going to be a tyrant I'm going to be an angry father, an abusive dad. I'm going to abuse power. I'm going to be super selfish. How does a human heart go bad? What does the spiral look like in our hearts that takes us from fear and insecurity to bad to worse? How does someone learn to justify great evil? 
It happens when we learn to hide from the truth. Saul hides throughout his life. At first he hid from his calling, and then he hid from his nation. But the worst thing he does is he learns over time to hide from the truth. There are hard truths that each of us need to hear to be able to keep our hearts from going hard. Will we have ears to hear? Because ultimately, this text is given to us so that we can avoid becoming like Saul. Instead of hiding our hearts from the truth, we can learn to guard our hearts, to keep our hearts. And to let light shine into the dark places of our hearts so that we can grow. And so let's look at this together. We're going to look at what Saul had become. We're going to look at the clues on how he got there. We're going to ultimately see the heart of the problem and hopefully learn how we can avoid this spiral ourselves. Are you ready? It's a lot to do, so we better start. What Saul had become. So to understand this text, you need to understand the context. For those who have been around for a while, we're fast forwarding a couple of decades, and Saul has been king, and he hasn't been a good king. He hasn't been a good leader. He's not a very good man. He's not a very good father. The one thing that he has proven to be good at is he is a good warrior. And God, in his mercy, has used Saul to save Israel from their enemies. And at the beginning of our chapter, chapter 15, Saul is given a direction by God, and verse 18 summarizes it. The Lord sent you on a mission and said, go devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. And so Saul is given these clear directions to go and thoroughly defeat the Amalekites, to not leave a person alive, and to not take anything for their own. It's one of those sections in the Old Testament that leaves us uh, very uncomfortable as modern people. Dear friends of mine reject the Bible because of passages like this one. And I understand their discomfort. And over the years, I too have grown fatigued with trite answers and simplistic Christian cliches from those inside the church about such difficult texts. Uh, I have also grown um, fatigued with superficial readings from those outside of the church. And so just know that when I come to this, I come as a child trying to describe mysteries, like an adult grappling with God amidst the beauties and horrors of the world. I have no easy answers. But I think as we take the text as it presents itself, which is what we must do, and we let it stand on its own terms, 
I think we find hints and clues about how we might move forward. First, we need to remember when this was written. It was a while back. It was a Bronze Age world. And while these commands jar our sensibilities, it wouldn't have jarred the sensibilities of anyone in this story. Because this is simply how the world was. How nations behaved, interacted, and survived. It was a brutal and violent time to be alive. And we find our Lord, as he often does, working out his salvation amidst the cultural materials that he had at hand. It's also important to remember who the Amalekites were. They were deeply violent people who had oppressed Israel and its neighbors in the most inhumane ways. Exodus 17 relates how the Amalekites attacked the Israelites on their way to Egypt when they had no way to defend themselves. Deuteronomy 25 adds that the Israelites were weary and worn out and that the Amalekites uh, attacked the people at the back of the Israelite wagon train, the people who were lagging behind the weakest people, the women and the children. Throughout the Old Testament record, we read of atrocity after atrocity against Israel and its neighbors uh, done by these people, always with unprincipled violence against the weak. How do you stop a group of Amalekites from destroying Israel and its neighbors? And the answer is with the tragic but necessary use of force. And it should be said that this was after the Lord had extended 300 years of patient mercy with the Amalekites. This is 300 years after those events in Egypt when God originally said, unless you change your ways, you will be destroyed. They didn't change their ways. And at this point, God said, enough. Israel, you need to take them out. But you are allowed to use force in this case. But you must not use force in the way that your neighbors use force. You see, to the, to the ancient reader, the command wouldn't have been offensive because of the violence, but because of the restrictions that God put on his people. Engage in this tragic use of force, but you can't do it like the other nations do it. You can't take any spoil. You can't benefit from this in any way. For all the other nations, a move like this would have been seen as an act of imperial expansion, an opportunity to increase your borders, to get spoils, to take some slaves. And God says, none of that. I want you to smite them as an instrument of divine justice. It is a necessary but terrible thing that you have to do and you are not allowed to profit from it one cent this is an act of justice not imperialism tragic but necessary and you will not celebrate it in any way or profit from it because to do that would be to 
become like the nations you are trying to diminish. But what does Saul do? In verse 4 through 9, he adopts the values of the nations that he sent to smite. He takes Agog, one of the king's prisoners. And the only reason to do that would be able to, is, is to leverage him for your own enrichment. They also take the best of the sheep and the cattle and the cows and the lambs and everything that was valuable. And to cap it all off, he builds a monument to himself, celebrating what has just occurred. So Saul has disobeyed. And more than that, he has totally missed God's heart. By adopting the imperialistic and violent ways of the nations around him, he has failed to make Israel different. He has failed to make them a light to the nations. Earlier in the book, Samuel warned that if you want a king like all the nations, that might be what you get. Well, Saul has finally and sadly become just that. What they had asked for and wanted all along. He's an Amalekite. He's a king like all the other nations. And that's what makes the Lord's regret and sorrow and grief in this passage, ring true. He regrets making Saul king. He's sad because of it. When it says he regrets him, we we have problems with God regretting or changing his mind because we think God's sovereign. Why does he do that? That doesn't make any sense. But you just got to enter into the story. It's not talking about abstract theology. It's talking about God's heart breaking over something sad. And it's using language that we understand to be able to communicate that to us. And what's crazy is while God and Samuel are grieving in this passage, that same night Saul is building a monument to himself. And so we see Saul becoming less human and God in some way becoming more human or humane to us. God and Samuel feel sorrow and grief while Saul becomes self-deceived and hardened. How did he get there? Okay, so that was all background. How did he get there? How did this happen? And we get some hints in our text. Uh, Samuel brings to him the hard truth of what he does, and we see him doing everything in his power to avoid it. First, you should just realize that he's clueless to what's happened. Verse 13, blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And then Samuel said, What then is the bleeding of the sheep in my ears 
and the lowing of the oxen that I hear. Every parent of a child has said something like this. A child has come to you and said, I have obeyed your command. And you will say, well, what is this toothpaste on your brush? You have not brushed your teeth. Dad, I've obeyed your command. What is this crying six-year-old girl wailing in front of me that you hit her? Some things are obvious. They're obvious to others. And we're oblivious to them. What in your life might be obvious to others or has been? And you're blind to it? And then there's this blame shifting. Look at verse 15. What is the first word out of Saul's mouth when he's confronted? They. They. It was them. It was the soldiers that brought them. They spared the best of the the sheep. He's taking responsibility off of himself and putting it on others. It's a tactic as old as the garden itself. I, I I didn't eat the fruit. It was the woman. In fact, it was the woman you made for me. You made the wrong woman. And the woman says, I don't like that guy either. And it was the snake, I think, that was kind of behind the whole thing. They, how much do you hear that, man? Is that where you go first? They, them, the other side of the aisle, the neighbor, they. Man, it makes the words of Jesus so healing when he says, man, start with yourself. Start with the log in your own wife. Be, a, be, be afraid of the instinct. Beware the instinct to say they. You might just be avoiding a hard truth. So there's just cluelessness. There's blame shifting. And then we see Saul minimizing the bad and maximizing the good. Look at verse 20 and 21. Saul says to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have brought back Agog, the king of Amalek, but I devoted most of the stuff to destruction, just not anything that was valuable. You know, all the valuable stuff I took, all the stuff that was worthless, I devoted to destruction. What Saul is saying is, let's not be technical here. Yeah, Agog is still alive, Sure, there's some stuff I failed to do, but it can't be that bad. Not enough to not get the credit for the stuff I did do. Because basically, I completely obeyed. (laughs) Kind of. (laughs) And then in verse 24, in one of Saul's pseudo-confessions, he he uses the word, I transgressed. Which is a, a very mild word in the Hebrew there for sin. So it's just not as bad as it could have been. Sure, I cut corners in my business transaction, but they were short corners. Not big ones. Sure, my company isn't completely ethical. But there's a lot of companies that are like that and look at all of the good that we do. It's minimizing the bad. 
And then there's a maximizing of the good. Because he says, we're going to use it for good things. We're going to sacrifice to the Lord. We took the stuff to sacrifice to the Lord. Which is one, not true. Because it says they took the stuff because it was valuable. But they try to cover the sin with religion. With religious moralism. I know I wasn't supposed to take these animals, but they're going to... It was for God. Or look at what we've done for God. You can imagine the people saying, sure, I'm unethical in business dealings, but I go to church. Yeah, there's, there's a string of broken relationships in my life, but look, look at how I serve the Lord. Look at this other part of my life. Hiding behind religion. It's no good. And it's what Samuel means when he says, I want obedience, not sacrifice. I want your actual heart to follow me, not your external religious actions. I don't want a person going through the motions. I want the heart. And I think about all the stuff that's justified by minimizing the bad and maximizing the good. I love movies about organized crime. I think they're awesome. Maybe you're like me and you're old school and you like like The Godfather. Or maybe you're new school and you like, I don't know, the Fast and Furious movies, all 19 of them. Maybe that's what you, maybe that's what you like. But here's the thing about those films. Sopranos. All the characters are likable. It's what makes you feel the tension. Because in all of the car stealing and murder and drug dealing, they're still nice to their moms. They're depicted as family people. Likeable people. Sure, he's a hitman, but he has dinner with his mom every Sunday. Sure, he steals cards, but he loves his kids. That's what makes the stories compelling. Because you feel like there's a part of him that's good. But here's the thing. Look at what we can justify. The, The petty criminal says, I've dealt drugs, but I've never killed anybody. The person in organized crime says, yeah, I've killed a few people, but they deserve it. And I use, look how I use the money. It's not genocide. And the people who commit genocide, I'm sure they say some things too. No one wakes up and says, I'm a selfish, terrible person. We blind ourselves to things that are true. We blame shift and we say they. We minimize the bad. We maximize the good. And then when we're caught, what do we do? Well, verse 24, he finally says, I have sinned. And we think, oh man, he's got it. Finally, there's hope for Saul. But not so fast. In a decade of ministry and in more decades of just being human, I can tell you this. When people get busted, they know what to say to get out of trouble. You know the magic words to say to your spouse, to your mom, or to your sister. I'm sorry. 
I'm sorry. I mean, I'm sorry. Can we get on with it? Can you pardon my sin? I'm sorry. Saul is busted. He knows he's in trouble. And now he's trying to save face. And so he asks Samuel, I'm sorry, I've sinned. Will you pardon me? Can we get on with it? And Samuel, Samuel's no spring chicken. Samuel's the prophet of God. He knows what's in a man's heart. And so he absolutely refuses to do it, knowing that the repentance isn't true. And so he says, as Samuel turned to go away, Saul seized the skirt of his robe and it tore. And Samuel said to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. So Samuel refuses to respond to Saul's pseudo-confession and he turns to leave. And now we see the reality of what is in Saul's heart. And it's not brokenness or confession. He's literally grasping at the kingship. He's grasping at Samuel, getting a hold of his robe. He tears it to pieces and Samuel uses it as an opportunity for a metaphor. God has torn the kingdom from your hands like you've torn my robe. And he's identified one of your neighbors who's going to be a new king, a king after my own heart with better stuff on the inside. And that paves our way to David. And the picture we're left with, though, with Saul is him grasping after being king. And here's the thing. God didn't reject Saul as a person. He rejected him as king. He was taking away something that he couldn't handle. He didn't have the character for it. Why not just accept that hard truth? Why not humble yourself? Accept the finality of the decision. Move on with your life, cultivating a heart for God and an inner character that can handle hard things. Why not take this severe mercy? Because it's keeping you from harming yourself and others. Why not lose the world, so to speak, and save your own soul? And now we're at the heart of the matter because Saul couldn't live without being king. Because he found all of his value and all of his worth in being king. We get to the heart of the matter in verse 17 when it says, Though you were little in your own eyes. Are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel. In the end, the big man was still a little man. He was still small in his own eyes. You remember his fears and insecurities hiding in the luggage. And here he's still trying to earn people's approval. God came and chose him. Not because of who he was or what he looked like or what he accomplished. It was all grace and mercy. But Saul never believed. He never trusted. Never had faith. 
Because there were these other voices saying, you're worth something because you're tall. Because you're strong. Because you look the part. You're a warrior. The people valued because of what he looked like. Because of what he did. Because of what he was accomplishing. And what, what do you have to do if that's the case? You have to build monuments to yourself. You have to keep the narrative going. You have to keep the appearances coming. And what's driving all of it? Fear. Insecurity. The big man is actually a little man inside, defined by his insecurities, by his fears, and now by his arrogance, which are the same thing, because you show me an arrogant, prideful man, and I will show you a man full of fear and insecurity. The little man needs to be a big man, but he's actually a little man. You see, when our value, our identity, is based on our performance, more and more we have to create an image of someone that has to succeed. You can't really admit mistakes. You can't admit when you've done wrong or when you've hurt people. And so you begin to blame others and speak in half-truths and minimize the bad and maximize the good and more and more protect this image of yourself that you've portrayed to the world the whole time neglecting the inner you, the one that feels small, that feels like a fraud, that feels fake, And in the midst of that dichotomy, your soul begins to to dry up and you become a sad, self-deluded person. The reality is is that as long as I have a a performance-based value system, the more necessary it becomes for me to create a context in which I cannot fail. I can't be wrong. I can't sin. I can't admit it. I can't see the people I'm hurting. It can't be my fault. And we end up rewriting the story. Even though everyone around us clearly sees it, we can no longer see it because we have become so self-deluded and so self-deceived. Is that not Saul's story? But we all build monuments to ourselves. There's critique that comes into your life that's easy for you to receive. That isn't where you've built a monument to yourself. And then there's critique that comes into your life where you're like, that cannot be true. For me, it's anything that has to do with my empathy. Because I've built my outward person on, I'm an empathetic I may not be the smartest guy in the world. I may not be the most organized pastor which you all know, but I have empathy. And so when someone comes to me and says, I'm not seen, you've been cold, you're unavailable, I'm like, that person, they just need to leave the church. How crazy could they be? I'm the empathy guy. 
I'm the understanding guy. But it's exactly in those places of pride that we can do the most damage. That's where the Lord wants to shine his light. Not on the things that it's easy. I'm the patriotic guy. I'm the moral person. How could I not be? What's the veneer? As long as we're trying to become big in our own eyes, we won't be honest about the things we need to change. And so what's the solution? God's already given Saul the solution. He says, I anointed you king. You were elected by sovereign grace. You were a farm boy looking after F-150s and tractors and stuff. You, you weren't wiser than anybody. You were taller, but who cares? You were small in your own eyes and I swooped in and I made you king. God, I didn't love you because you were taller. I loved you because I loved you. It's the same thing that that God tells to Israel in Deuteronomy. You remember that? He's like, I didn't choose you because you were a better nation or a bigger nation or a greater nation or a smarter nation or a taller nation. I chose you because I chose you because I chose you because I loved you. The very circular argument. I remember the first thing, and the probably may, maybe the most important thing that I learned at Grace Chapel when I was becoming a Christian, is Mike Shue would do the children's messages like we do now, and he had like three children's messages that he did over and over again, and one of them was the, why does God love you kids? And they're like, he loves me because I'm good. He loves me because whatever. And he would just say, no, God loves you because he loves you. Because he loves you. And he did that for years. And finally the kids were like, Yeah, he loves me because he loves me. <laughs> I'll be like, why did, he, why did he beat that into their heads? Because it's one of the most important things you can know. Because if you think somebody loves you because of X, Y, and Z, it makes you have to protect X, Y, and Z. But if he loves you because he loves you, then you can look at it. Then you have the emotional ballast to say, I don't need to protect anything in my life. There's nothing out of bounds for critique. In fact, the gospel says, you're really bad. You're self-deceived. You are an enemy of God. There's stuff in your, you are capable of so much mischief. It is your circumstances that have kept you from great evil, not your own goodness. And look at what the Lord has done. He has sent Jesus for us. The obedient Son of God, who while we were still sinners, He died for us. And it says, He proved his unique love for us in this. He proved his love for us in this. He grounded sovereign grace in this. He took his son and he died for us. Wiped out for us. Who deserved to be wiped out? 
The great king who doesn't take prisoners liberates them. Who doesn't kill is killed so that enemies can become friends. I love you. And I've proven my love. And I've rooted it in this gospel story so that you can know that you're loved because you're loved because of Jesus. Not because of who you are or what you do, you're tall or this or that. And that makes you able to look on the inside. Because when you receive the critique that's hard, you take out the love. And you say, I'm going to lean into this. In this moment. So I guess the only questions for us are these. Is there something that's obvious to others around you? But that you've been denying yourself? A way that you've been talking to the kids. And your wife or your husband has said a number of times. That tone is going to do something to the heart of our kids. You need to deal. I'm a good dad though. I'm good. I can't be an angry dad. Man, you're so driven at your work. It's killing the family. We need to make a change. You drink too much, I think. You spend too much. I couldn't be an alcoholic. I couldn't be greedy. Is there something that's obvious to others? That we won't listen to. Is God telling you that you need to let go of something that you can't handle right now? That's okay. You can do that because he loves you because he loves you. Will you trust his love enough to let critique in? Will you let it soften you? Will you let it humble you? Will you let it save you? Or will you hold and grasp on to these monuments in your life that you have made until they destroy you? Let me pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we do not want to be like Saul. The fact is, is he had the opportunity to look to you and to see sovereign grace, to see mercy and love, to hide his life in what you had done for him. But he wouldn't believe it. He wouldn't take hold of it. And as a result, he became hard, hardened, mean, violent, um, separated from those he loved. He spiraled down. Well, you raise us up. And you've given it, we have better resources than even Saul had because we have the perfect son of God who lived the life that we should have lived, who died the death that we deserve to die, the great one who became small so that we could become great. So help us tear down the monuments in our lives that take up so much space in our hearts. Help us address these fears and insecurities. Help us to know the measure of your love to us and set us free. Free to be able to look at the hardest parts, the hardest critiques. Free to grow. Free to become what you've made us to be. We ask for this grace in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.